This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget, you can subscribe to get automatic updates to your podcast feed every Thursday. Today, we're focusing our attention on Warkworth Castle, once the favoured residence of the powerful earls of Northumberland. To discover the fascinating history of this ruined medieval fortress, and a new project to share it in new and exciting ways with today's visitors. With us to explain more are our two guests for today. Hi, I'm Dr. William Wyeth. I'm a properties historian at English Heritage, specialising in castles and their landscapes. Hi, I'm Joe Savage. I'm a senior interpretation manager at English Heritage. And interpretation is the way in which visitors explore a site and understand the story. Let's set the scene first of all then. Walkworth Castle, where does it sit within the village of Walkworth and more broadly? Yeah, so Walkworth is located in Northumberland, which was a border area for much of medieval English history. And the village of Walkworth, which is right by the castle, is surrounded on three sides by the River Coquit. So if you imagine the letter U upside down, the village sits within that space. And the castle actually fills the fourth side, the south side, So in effect, it encloses the village on all four sides. So it's sort of sitting within that sort of dip. That's right. Yeah, it it sits within the loop of the river. So the castle kind of shields the village and the village is contained by the castle. And can you describe how the castle appears to visitors today, Joe? I mean, the first thing I, I suppose to say is that it is a ruin, but it's a really impressive one, isn't it? Yes, it's a really striking place. And although a lot of it is ruined, some buildings like the Great Tower and the Lion Tower, survived to a really impressive degree. And there are a number of enclosed rooms, passages, staircases, which make the castle really fun to explore. In terms of how it appears to visitors today, the perimeter of the castle, which is known as the Curtain Wall, still encloses the whole space. So although the ravages of time and conflict have eroded some of the buildings, it really isn't a huge leap of the imagination to picture the complete castle in your mind's eye. Okay. And who built it? Why did they build it? The earliest history of the castle is is not straightforward because our written sources are are not very strong and our understanding of the archaeology and the architecture is quite limited. But there are two competing theories. The first theory about who built the castle, and which is the one that's generally accepted up until quite recently, is that it was built between the 1190s and the 1210s by the grandson of a nobleman from Essex, Roger Fitz Eustace. And that family is later known as the Claverings after the village in Essex where they were originally from. And the time at which Roger was given Walkworth in the 1150s and 1160s was when Henry II of England had retaken control of Northumberland, this border county, from the neighbours to the north, the Scots. And so the logic of this argument is that Henry would have given control of quite sensitive pieces of land to key followers of his, of which Roger Fitzeustace was one and Walkworth was one such estate. Now, I mentioned there were two theories. The second theory which some more recent research undertaken as part of this project has supported, suggests that the castle may be a bit older, built at least in the 1130s. So this would make the builder of Walkworth, Henry of Scotland, who from 1139 was Earl of Northumberland and was made so by King Stephen of England during the anarchy, this period of chaotic political violence in the middle of the 12th century. Henry of Scotland's father was King David I of Scotland and Henry was his heir apparent before dying before his father died himself. So in this period between the late 1130s and 1150s, although on paper Northumberland was a county of the Kingdom of England, both Henry of Scotland and his father King David treated it as part of the Kingdom of Scots, not of England. Now the reason why the castle is built where it is is a bit more clear if you're in the village today, you'll be able to see that or if you visit the castle soon. The castle and village were likely built at the same time, so in an immediate sense, the castle shielded the village and the village provided income and labour to the castle. But going back in time, there is some evidence that Walkworth was important even before the castle and village were planted there. So the parish church contains some really nice carved stone from between the 10th and 11th centuries, which tells me, an archaeologist, that this was an important place before the castle was there. And there are even some references from 737 and 867 of kings and Vikings in the area interacting with Walkworth. So it must have been a place that was quite important. If you look at the castle from its immediate geography, 
It's located at the lowest fording point of the River Coquit that I mentioned earlier that loops around the village and the castle. Right before the river then leads to the estuary with its salt marshes to the east and then onto the North Sea. And so those kind of key facts about its immediate geography, the fact that it was a fording point, the fact that it was close to the estuary, suggests to me again with my archaeologist hat on that this has been an important place for some time. So, Will, who were the most famous residents of Walkworth Castle over the centuries? Obviously, we've got the Eustace connection, but uh, are there any other families who become long-term residents? Yeah, so uh, as you say, apart from the Eustace and and the the Claverings as they later become, and this possible early Scottish royal connection, arguably the most famous owners were the Percy family. I think even if you don't know anything about medieval history, you'll have heard of the Percys. And that's because this family dominated the politics of the north of England for much of the medieval period, beginning in the early 1300s. And they were made most famous, I think, in popular consciousness by one member of this family called Henry Percy or Harry Hotspur, as he's called in Shakespeare's play, Henry IV, Part I. And in Shakespeare's imagination, Hotspur is at the centre of a failed conspiracy to depose the king. And I've got a nice quote here, which I want to read out because it captures how Harry Hotspur has entered popular consciousness, perhaps even more vigorously than than the historical record. This is the scene of, of Hotspur's death at the Battle of Shrewsbury. He tried to depose the king and it was unsuccessful. And we hear from the king's son, Prince Henry or Prince Hal, who is lamenting Hotspur's death. So Hal says, fare thee well, great heart, ill-weaved ambition, how much thou art shrunk, when that this body did contain a spirit a kingdom, for it was too small a bound, but now two paces of the vilest earth is room enough. And so even though in Shakespeare's mind, Prince Hal has fought Hotspur, has defeated him, has protected his father's own hold of the Kingdom of England, such was the stature of, of Harry Hotspur that, that he laments the death of his enemy in battle. It's a really moving sort of piece. Uh, but that's a fascinating idea, isn't it? Um, that the enemy slain is, is still respected in, in death. Interesting. How did the castle then change under these successive owners? Well, yeah, I, I mentioned that we know most about the Percys and before the Percys held the castle, it was the Claverings. But the story isn't, isn't straightforward, typically. Members of the Percy family, like Hotspur, I mentioned, and the first Earl, also called Henry Percy, fell out with the crown. You know, Shakespeare captures what was actually an historic fact. And so at various times, the castle was seized by royal agents, which is not uncommon. In the early 1460s, in the Wars of the Roses, for example, Walkworth was used as a base by the Earl of Warwick to direct attacks on Lancastrian forces in the neighbouring castles like Dunstanborough and Bamborough and Annick. And so it was occupied, you know, for, it wasn't consistently a Percy house, a castle or a, or a Clavering household, but there were periods of different occupation. But I should say that although these royal agents or, for example, the other Warwick occupied the castle, we don't necessarily think they did a huge amount of construction. So when you go to the site today, most of what you see is the product of these two families. I see. And the ruins of what we can see today, can you give us a couple of centuries where we can sort of relate to what we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, there is a simple answer, which is what I'll give you first. And then there's a slightly complicated one, which is quite interesting. So the simple answer is the castle probably dates to the 12th century in its origin. And so that's, that's to the time of either Henry of Scotland or when King Henry II gave it to one of his followers. The complicated but quite tantalising answer is that we aren't entirely sure when the oldest part of the castle, that's the, that's the massive earthworks, the big platform and the mound, which we call a modern bailey. We don't know when those were built. It could be built in the 12th century, but they could also be older still, taking it to within a generation, perhaps two of the Norman conquest. But we, we just don't know. We don't have the archaeological evidence at this point. But the Motten Bailey, that mound, and then the structure on top is a classic hallmark of Norman castle building, is it not? Yeah, Motten Baileys are very typically built in, in England in the 11th and 12th centuries. And so they tend to suggest that there is an early castle here. And, you know, not all Motten Baileys are equal. The one at Walkworth is very substantial. And the castle as it stands today, the curtain wall that Joe mentioned, this enclosing wall that surrounds the lower area, the Bailey area, today doesn't actually enclose the entire earthwork. And that's what tells us that there may be an older story here is that the original earthwork, this original Bailey may have been too big for the people who built in the late 12th century. That's part one. And part two to say is that although the mound that's at the castle today that carries this great tower that looms over the village is very tall, we think that actually 
the mound has been lowered to allow for that stone tower to be built and so it would have originally been even taller looming really high over the village and they had to lower it because the stone tower was far too heavy to be supported by the mot. Wow, that's fascinating. And perhaps even a bit vulnerable from people throwing projectiles at it. I don't know. Yeah, Um, I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. I mean, certainly a consideration for something like the mot would have been to protect you from people coming in. But, you know, at the same time, it's two sides of the coin. There's the other side of the coin is that in times of peace, which was a lot of time in the medieval period, this tower loomed over you and you were left in no doubt as to who was in charge. Well, today the castle is about 25 miles south of the Scottish border, being where it is on, on the northeastern coast. But how did its proximity to this contested border impact life at the castle during those early centuries of, of its construction? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we kind of almost touched upon this question. I want to preface this answer by, by an interesting fact. Um, the Anglo-Scottish border is one of the oldest documented political boundaries in the world, with few exceptions it has been fixed since 1237. That's the Treaty of York. Now, contrary to what we might imagine, there wasn't always warfare between the kingdoms of uh, England and the kingdom of Scots. But, you know, we have to say for all that castles were impressive residences, the most intense period of fighting and warfare between these two kingdoms was without doubt the 14th to 15th centuries. And that's, you know, when the Perseids are on the scene. Now, I, I, th- I think it's an interesting question about the impact of being on the border had on the castle, because to my mind, the impact isn't in ways that we might necessarily imagine. So I've looked at the sources and the castle has been attacked at least two times in its history in the medieval period. That's in 1174 and again in 1327. Those are by the Scots. And there was a further attack a couple of decades later in the 14th century when the village was attacked by the Scots. Whilst I mentioned a final siege of the castle, one of the ones that we have actually the best evidence for in the early 15th century by Henry IV, you know, he fired cannons at the castle. So that, that's not a product of it being on the border. That's because the Percys were there, who were at that time being quite difficult with the crown. I think so, you know, being on the border meant that the castle and the village have been attacked, but it also meant that the castle was heavily invested in. The reason for that is that being on the border meant that the English crown gave money to the castle owners to say, right, we're giving you this money to be able to hire soldiers, to hire warriors, to maintain arms and, and protective devices in this area in case there's an attack. And inevitably, some of that money that was given to the Percys to, to look after their fences made its way into their own pockets and in turn made its way into the pockets of master masons and builders employed by the Percys to make the castle this wonderful spectacle of medieval architecture that survives today. So, you know, being on the border, yes, it was involved in warfare, but it an unintended byproduct is, is, is that the investment by the crown led to a huge investment in architecture that wasn't just concerned with defence. Very interesting. So making Walkworth Castle a place of prestige that could relate to the crown in a way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Percys used the funds that they, they received from the crown to hire soldiers, yes, to organise for defence, yes, but they also used it to cement their position in the north as, as leaders in society in Northumberland and, and to a certain extent in Cumbria as well. And in parts of Yorkshire, they became one of the main families in, in late medieval England in the north because they developed a local connection, which the crown wasn't able to do. And in fact, the crown was more interested in making sure that the kingdom as a whole was defended. So the story of the Percys in this time is some kings deciding that they were happy to have the Percys run the show in the north of England. And other times, as is the case with Henry IV, kings had had enough. The Percys were becoming overmighty and needed to be put in their place. After the rebellion that killed Hotspur and his father in, in the early years of the 15th century, the second and third earl were extremely loyal to the crown. And for that, they were also rewarded with funding and with support. And, and they invested in architecture, not just in Walkworth, but their other castles too. So it's a really interesting story. Fascinating power dynamics as well. Um, and yeah, how, yeah, how they and changed. yeah. I mean, how does a king straddle the line of safety? You know, I mean, we know that the first Earl and Harry Hotspur were plotting to remove the king and execute them. But, you know, Henry IV didn't have much money. That's part of the reason that he couldn't give the Percys the money that they asked for. You know, it was between a rock and a hard place for the crown. The Percys were extremely ambitious, but they also had the local needs that they needed to meet as well as leaders in local society, you know. So, yeah, really interesting. You've described the 
two times that the castle saw conflict, 1174 and 1327, I believe. That's right, yeah. And yeah. um, Are there any others? These are the ones that you've found in the sources, but um, are there any other clues, perhaps, in the masonry that might indicate that there was more than a few battles? We don't have a huge amount of direct evidence for there having been sieges at Walkworth, although we know the two that you mentioned there, the attack by the Scots, and there was also the third, the big royal siege of 1405 under Henry IV, who brought his cannons to the wall. Now, the evidence in the archaeology is is ambiguous. I believe that that part of the castle, there was an excavation done in the 1960s, and I think that part of the archaeological evidence there suggests that actually the narrative source for, for Henry IV's siege, which described those cannons being shot, doesn't say that they were fired at the castle. You know, I, th- I think we've, we've imagined that it may have been firing them across the bow to borrow from naval warfare, you know, not necessarily shooting at, but shooting past to make a point. But actually, the evidence in the archaeology, which, which says that there was a big change in a specific, in, in the specific occupation of one part of Walkworth Castle around the time of this siege, I kind of think that it's telling us that maybe the king did fire at the castle and that parts of the walls and perhaps a tower on the corner of the castle were actually destroyed. And so what that source is telling us is that there may have been evidence of destruction at some point in the castle, but going to the going to Walkworth today and looking around, you won't see cannonballs, you won't see, you know, explosion craters. That evidence is gone, unfortunately. But there may be a case from the archaeology. So many more questions, really, about that. So how do we get the ruins that we have today, Will? Yeah, I mean, as with most castles, it's not a straightforward story. Up until the 16th century, members of the Percy family lived there, like in the mould of the Hotspur and the First Earl. But at that point in the 16th century, the family encounters financial and political difficulties. They're caught up in some plots and, and money becomes an issue. And so Walkworth is no longer a priority for them. Moving into the next century, the Percys lease out the castle to be used as perhaps a residence, perhaps essentially a, a glorified farm, and that leads to the castle being further decayed. We know that in the 17th century, during the Civil War of 1642-8, to the castle was garrisoned for both the King and Parliament, and when the Parliamentarians withdrew in 1648, it's recorded that they removed all of its doors and iron, and And as an archaeologist interested in buildings, to my mind, that's a watershed moment because once spaces stop being inhabitable by aristocrats like the Percy's, once it loses the ability to invest in the maintenance of the building, the ruination really begins in earnest. And we aren't too sure of what goes on after that time, after the Civil War, but we know that in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Dukes of Northumberland, based at now Annock Castle, just up the road from Walkworth, took a renewed interest in in Walkworth because it was one of their ancestral seats. The Dukes of Northumberland are still Percy's today. And so parts of the castle were restored. And then in the early 20th century, legislation comes into place and the castle and the hermitage become ancient monuments. And then in 1984, the castle and hermitage came into the care of English heritage. So there's a story of gradual decline with some watershed moments like the Civil War, for example. Yes, and of course, as you've been describing, as soon as you start taking away iron and other objects, then you get water getting in. And, Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah and we're things, all familiar with that kind of process, yeah. yeah. Yeah, things start corroding and eroding, so yes. But you've mentioned there um, a couple of times the Hermitage, which is this quirky addition to the castle. This is, um, for people who don't know, carved directly out of the cliff rock. So can you describe whereabouts that is on the site and I also understand that it's accessible via via the river. That's right yeah so it, it's accessible only on specific days of the week so if you get excited by what I'm about to say which I hope you are because it's an amazing visit do check in advance but where is it? So the Hermitage is about 500 metres west of the castle across the river Coquit so it's on its own isolated bank and it's constructed as you said into the cliff face and it comprises two big parts really there's the rock cut chapel because that's what it is. It's a chapel and a domestic dwelling. Now, we think it was built at the same time as the Great Tower, so between the 1390s and around 1400. And although it's called a hermitage, you know, you would associate that with someone bedraggled, perhaps with a extensive hair growth and facial hair, we don't think it was actually where a hermit lived. It probably operated more like what we would call a chantry chapel. So that's a place where, a chapel where patrons like the Percy's would pay 
a chaplain, that's a cleric, a priest, to say services, to say prayers in the honor of the souls of the family, the Percy's and their ancestors. And this was kind of an investment, a putting of capital towards religious salvation, really. And this practice of setting up chapels like this was very common in the medieval period. And the chaplain, you know, I mentioned they weren't a hermit scraping a living off the land. They had actually quite a nice living. <laughs> if you get there, you'll see that next to the chapel, there are the remains of this comfortable two-story stone house with a detached stone kitchen. And we know from records about later chaplains in the 15th and 16th centuries that the Percys gave them a portion of fish from the river every week, as well as fuel for the fire and sometimes fruits from the orchard, which was located nearby. And this was all part of the jobs package, if you, if you like, with the <laughs> perks of the position. And it's possible that the chaplains also had at least one servant. So, you know, it was an important position. The Percys wanted that investment in salvation for them and their family, but it was it was not a hermit as we would understand it. Do we know when that was carved into the rock, this so-called hermitage? And, and how long someone would have been actually doing the prayers for how many centuries? We think it was built in the late late 14th and early 15th centuries. And we get that date not from written sources because they're quite they're not very strong for the hermitage but from the style of architecture and and some of the architectural details of the rock cut chapel although it's quite weathered there are some echoes to the great tower at walkworth castle itself so we think they may be part of the same package of investment how long was it used well obviously the reformation in england tended to restrict the kind of religious observance that took place at the chapel and so we i'd imagine by the middle of the 16th century the chapel was no longer given over to private religious observance. So it was it was being used for 150 years. So there have been several generations of, of chantry priests operating there. But our written sources are not very strong. So I think we know of maybe two or three named individuals for the entirety of its history. Wow. So still quite a few gaps in our knowledge there. But yeah. it's certainly very attractive, isn't it, as you walk in? I, I gather that uh, it's quite light and there's also stained glass windows built in. Yes, there is the remains of stained glass windows that survive, but it's a really... I don't know if it's because we know that it's a chapel or because when you approach, you have to cross the river and you're away from roads, you're away from the hustle and bustle of Walkworth Village. There are no cars, no you know, no shops, nothing there. It is surrounded by woodland in a glade and cut into the cliff of a rock. And so the only sounds you can hear is the rustle of trees and the gentle kind of burbling of the river. And then you enter this serene space and it's it's delightful. It's like it's a spiritual experience, I would say. You know, it's a really powerful place. And what days of the week can people visit that? I would recommend checking the website because it does depend on, on the season. But I think it's one or two days a week. But do check the website and definitely go for it because it's a real, it's an absolute gem of a visit to the castle as well. It's it's brilliant. Well, there's so much to talk about, isn't there? There's there's the gem of the hermitage. There's the historical gem of the castle itself with all its multiple layers and, and stories and clues about what might have happened to us over the centuries. But there has been also this additional thing that we need to talk about. And this is where we bring in Joe Savage, English Heritage's Senior Interpretation Manager. So you're sort of responsible for the storytelling and the presentation of Walkworth Castle and its hermitage to visitors. What can you tell us about this new project that we've been teasing in the introduction? We're adding to the castle's stories as Will has been describing. So what's the new project about? Yes, well, as, as Will has really clearly described, you know, the castle is quite easy to understand as a, as a space and it feels almost quite complete in, in areas. And so you might think that you, you understand what's happening in the spaces and what, and what the areas are for. But actually, until now, there's been relatively little in the castle to explain exactly how it worked, how it functioned as a space and as a community. At the same time, we've already talked about it being a fun place to explore. It absolutely is a great place to let off steam with your family and to run around. And we were getting a lot of feedback from people that were saying how you know they, they really enjoyed playing hide and seek in the castle. They really enjoyed getting happily lost in the maze of rooms. And so this project is basically to take that experience that people are already enjoying and then add layers of information and story to really bring it to life. And so from the very outset, our aspiration was to tell the story of the whole castle household. So not just the traditional tales of the elite that you often experience, and that, that includes the sort of high fluting characters of Shakespeare, 
we wanted to populate the castle with the household as a whole, you know, that all the people that sustained the family, that looked after the horses, the cooking and brought the goods into the castle, all those kind of little told people. And we also wanted to bring back the sense of kind of colour and vibrancy in theatre. And this was very much a place to be seen in the medieval world. You know, the whole castle is designed in a way that you can look out onto the bailey from the great tower and see what's going on in that space. When you're in the great hall, you've got a high table where the owners of the castle were on view from all the guests. So there's a real sense that everyone is putting on a performance during the medieval period. And we wanted to kind of bring that sense of performance back into the castle. And why did you, why did English Heritage decide to embark on this project now? Well, because it has so much potential. I've frequently heard it described as one of the finest medieval residences in Europe, which sounds like it should be on the top of everyone's to-do list. But in a county like Northumberland that is so very, very rich in famous castles, it's still a bit of a hidden gem. People don't necessarily know about it. So we wanted to really draw out its strengths and encourage people to go and experience it, stay for longer and also return. And this has been a record-breaking year for visits to English Heritage's castles. There's been a real surge in interest. And so it's absolutely appropriate that we should be investing to enhance what I think, and I think the organisation feels as a whole, is one of the most splendid castles in the country. So off the back of the pandemic in the year ending 2022, there were plenty of visits from people wanting to enjoy their local castles effectively and local English heritage sites. Absolutely. I think people did really want to discover the spaces that are close to them. And I think people discovered the whole English countryside in a new way. And Walkworth Castle sits over the most idyllic village and it's right on this really beautiful piece of coastline with sandy beaches and fantastic walks so it makes a fantastic visit just to the general area yes it really is a beautiful space and everyone's really friendly and of course they have the lovely northeast accents which is like listening to music and they do fantastic breakfast as we discovered um, (laughs) while we've been building this project ah okay one of the perks i suppose So Will was describing um, earlier some of the sort of gaps in our knowledge. So what are the new stories that have emerged that you've been able to use to explain to visitors when they come to visit Walkworth Castle now? As um, Will's mentioned, the Percy family were really big players in the politics of the 14th and 15th century. They were power brokers and they were plotters. Sometimes they were allied to the crown. Sometimes they were rebels. And it's very easy to just tell the compelling tales of those battles and the schemes and the scandals. But we're absolutely committed to uncovering the lives of ordinary people. um, And in particular, showing how their concerns were impacted by the overall machinations of the castle owners. And so one of the things we've been trying to do is, is tease out some of those stories. And it's really not been very easy because some of those less known figures, they just exist in the written record very fleetingly. Sometimes it's no more than a name in a will or a name and an occupation. So building and extrapolating a picture of their world has really been down to a lot of painstaking research by Will and others. And what we've managed to do is pull out a a handful of people whose lives are interconnected and whose lives feel colourful and critically, who are all authentic people that lived around the castle. And we we have an idea of when they were here and whereabouts they were living. Is there a bit of creative license in telling their stories then, as people get to encounter these people, uh, these names throughout the site? It's always a very interesting balance because, yes, the actual detail of the lives and where they went and and how they operated and who they were in touch with is not on, on record. But there are clues in the evidence for them. So, for instance, one story I really like that has, has come out is, is related to a character called William Stowe, who is an aged retainer, an experienced soldier that's been in the service of the Percy family for a number of years. And in his instance, what we had was his will in which he was bequeathing some of his possessions to various people, including a piece of coral that he had that he was giving to the Countess Eleanor Neville. 
and that act of just giving a gift it does um, shed some light onto his character and his background. So at the time, coral was a very precious item that was thought to have some health-giving qualities. And in particular, it was thought to staunch blood flow. So it's very appropriate for a warrior to have a piece of coral in his possession because, you know, he's often at risk of being injured in in warfare and and needing to kind of reduce his blood loss. He also then gives that to the Countess. Now, what that tells us is, A, he's quite fond of the Countess. They have a a relationship that is more than just kind of on first name terms. There is a warmth to that relationship. But also that there's a reason for him giving this coral. And and that might be related to childbirth. So it might be related to the risks that women in medieval England went through in giving birth in, in terms of their own blood loss and their own risk of death. And so that then unlocks another story about the risks that medieval women were going through, but also the importance of the Countess's family to William Stowe. So that's how we've kind of built up a story. So yes, there is some kind of creative thinking about how these people operated, but essentially it's rooted in in fact and in a real understanding of the medieval world. And how does the visitor encounter these characters then? Each of these characters has a, a trail around the castle. And these trails are all different. They start in different places and they end up in different places. So collectively, if you do every single trail, you will visit every single room of the castle in the company of one of the medieval residents. It's absolutely set out so that you can swap trails if you want, or you can abandon them, or you can just go your own way. So it's 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 not very prescriptive. But each character takes us on a particular route. So in the case of William Stowe, the warrior, he's in charge of the security of the castle. We find him at a time of siege, and he is taking us around all the fortifications of the castle, all the bits that are related to defence. And he's checking the locks, he's checking the security. And at the end of each of these trails, we come across a sculpture. We discover an interactive sculpture. And in the case of William Stowe, it's a a huge padlock where the top is scribed to the shape of the castle. If you turn the key, you hear a little bit of his story. Oh, wow. So they're they're fun sculptures, but they're also visually dramatic and they're hidden. You know, you you kind of encounter them on, on the route, but you don't necessarily see them as soon as you walk into the castle. So each of these characters has one. And the the purpose of these sculptures is that they interpret a larger part of the story. So whilst you're on the trail, you're encountering the daily life of these characters. But when you hit the sculpture, that's when you realise that there is a national event in which this character plays potentially a very, very small part, but a, a part nonetheless. So you kind of get a sense of how everyone feeds into the world of the castle. It also feels quite like a video game, which I think would appeal to certainly children and probably a few adults as well. You know, you're sort of going on a trail, you're getting to the end of the level, so to speak, and then you have this sculpture that you see and interact with, and maybe it you speaks to you. And you have a reward, yeah. yeah. So it's um, it's Absolutely. like that, really. Absolutely. It has that same sense of fun and adventure. But it, in a sense, it's also a furiously analogue sort of experience. You know, this is a, a place where families can experience kind of real stuff and and real materials and physically exert themselves by kind of exploring this vast site. Just out of those set of sculptures, could you give us a couple of examples of what they look like? Or, or is that ruining the game, actually? No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I can, we worked with a team of architects and artists called Wigland and Moore, who were very interested in the way that items were produced in the medieval world. And while each of these sculptures has been created using very recent technology, and that includes 3D printing and computer machining and, and, and all sorts of really kind of quite cutting edge technology, they would all be recognisable to the medieval residents because they've all got a material quality that existed at the time. So in some instances, they're made out of cast bronze or there's a vast 3D printed mould that has been created for a model of the Great Tower that has then been filled with cast iron. So all this 
technology would have been recognizable to the original residents, but has been given a very modern twist. And so the beauty of it is that everything feels like, you know, it feels solid and it feels very refined. One of the characters, a character called John the Wardrobe, who is a, a servant of the wardrobe, his sculpture is in the shape of a moth because a moth represents his big foe. You know, his whole life is spent trying to keep the Earl's fabrics in one piece. And so whilst the Perses are off fighting the crown in some instances or fighting on behalf of the crown, his world is much smaller. He's interested in fighting these moths, but he does rub up against some quite significant plots and this is hinted at in the sculpture so you've got this this huge bronze sculpture of a moth but there's a secret within it that hints at a a wider plot so there's that sort of kind of playful discovery are there any other aspects of medieval daily life that are explained to visitors yes i mean the everyday story of diets and cooking is explained through a wonderful character called Widow Norton, who we understand to be a fish farmer who lived very close to the castle. Her story is about bringing in a consignment of fish to help prepare for a feast to celebrate a new earl at the, at the castle. She comes into the castle through what we call the Poston Gate, or what was called the Poston Gate, which is a, a smaller gate than the main one that's in the gatehouse, but is actually the gate through which most people that entered the castle would have experienced it. So we have a slightly artificial view of entering the castle because we come in through across the drawbridge and through this kind of fancy gatehouse. And in doing so, we're putting ourselves in the position of the very richest and and most elite visitors to the castle. Most people would come through the Poston Gate as Widow Norton does. So she brings her consignment of fish into the castle and then she takes us on a route through all the back passages and back stairs to get up to the kitchen where we discover this vast space, these huge fireplaces that um, would have created the most enormous feasts with some quite surprising foods. So she's a great character and one of the lovely things that we've discovered as we've been delivering this project is um, each of these characters starts at a, a special graphic sign and whilst we were installing this we were working with archaeologists to dig the holes and in the hole for Widow Norton's trail we found some enormous fish bones so we felt well we're absolutely on target with this one. So basically you can experience the site through the regular sort of information panels that you'll see dotted around an English heritage site which is nice and you've got these sculptures you've got these characters that have been sort of created from historical facts but with a bit of creative license and um You've got the sort of discovery aspect as well, the adventure game kind of aspect. Are there any other facets to the storytelling devices? Yes, absolutely. Not everyone is up for an adventure or a trail. So for those people that just want to explore the castle in their own way, the first thing you see is this exquisite scale sculpture of the castle in its heyday. And it's been carved from a huge block of Portland stone and no exaggeration, it's one of the finest stone carvings I've ever come across. What it does is it links up to the architecture that you can see in front of you. So you can see the pieces of the castle that are complete and also the pieces that are missing and just get a sense of actually what the space would have looked like and how full the bailey would have been of buildings. This is a result of weeks and weeks and weeks of research that Will has undertaken where he's poured over every stone in the castle to understand what evidence that it it suggested for buildings that could have existed and how those buildings would have responded to each other. So it's a fantastic record of of, of the castle that can just be explored. There's also an audio guide where visitors get to listen to a conversation between Will and also Anne Burke, who is a long-time resident of Walkworth, and her ancestors were the last caretakers of the castle. So Will mentioned that at some point the castle had been used as a farm. Anne's great great-grandparents were custodians of that farm and they actually lived in the gatehouse so even now it's quite difficult even walking around the gatehouse with Anne it's quite difficult to understand how they lived but those very recent human stories are fascinating to understand and what I love about the audio tour is that Will and Anne are discovering the castle together almost for the first time even though both of them know it intimately so it's a fascinating audio tour to listen to and there's also a virtual tour that we've created of the Great Tower for those people that aren't able to access it. 
where you can explore all the different rooms and then there are little cameos um, from Will where he's talking about various different aspects of the of, of the architecture. And for those people who just love traditional heritage panels, there are those two. So they're, you know, it's not all through the voices of medieval folk. And with this um, Portland stone carved model, which is in the centre of the site, does that ex- sort of explain the wider castle landscape as well? It, no, it just really is restricted to the earthworks and the castle itself. To get a sense of the wider landscape, the best thing that visitors can do is to go up into the Great Tower and look out through the windows at the really incredible views on all four sides. And what we think is that those views are actually created for the owners of the castle to really get a sense of the world that they lead and that they own. So on one side, you can see the deer park, the the area for both entertainment and also training for warfare. This deer park is now farmland, but you can very much see the kind of the ridges and the furrows of some of the farmed area around it, but also get a sense of how the landscape worked. And then on the other side, you can see the coast and you can see the area where there would have been salt pans for producing salt that could be used to preserve food. From one side, you can look out into the bailey and see the castle community itself. And from the other, as you look north, you look down into the town itself, which is laid out pretty much in the formation of a of medieval town and even today, the structure of it, partly because it is so landlocked. And you look down and you can see the parish church, which would have been a, a key location in castle life. So from those windows, you really do get a sense of the medieval world all encompassed on all the compass points. Well, that describes it really well. And um, I think a lot of people listening, whether they're here in the UK or perhaps abroad, are thinking of a really magical place. <laughs> Speaking of sort of magic and surprise, were there any surprises in the course of your research for this project, either of you, uh, perhaps Will, did you find any gems in the research as you were exploring how you were going to tell these stories to new visitors? Yeah, I mean, I, I found I found more than a few, but I've, I'm going to try to distill it to my two favourite surprises, favourite discoveries. The first is that of Henry Percy of Athol. This is a teenager who, for a short time in Walkworth's history, was the most senior, the most powerful Percy that was in charge of the castle, even though they were probably no older than 14 at the time of an important attack, an important political development at the site. Athol's uncle, Harry Hotspur, had just been killed at the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403, and so Percy was temporarily in charge of the castle. And when agents of the crown, agents of Henry IV, came to the front the front door of the castle and demanded its surrender, Athol rather ingeniously announced with regret that he couldn't surrender Walkworth because he didn't have the right ceremonial regalia. And this was obviously an excuse, but he managed to play it off so well that in, in the end, the crown had to make do with a rather vague promise not to rebel against the crown and uh, for the earl to remain at least notionally loyal to Henry IV. And that, that didn't work out in the end, but, but it's a fascinating insight into that teenager's um, contribution <laughs> to one part of, of the history. Yes. The other great discovery, which Joe touched upon earlier, was about this incredible, frankly, almost unbelievable plot, which took place in 1405, which centers on this document, this medieval document called the Tripartite Indenture. That's a three-part contract. And that, in essence, was a secret agreement made between the first earl who lived at Walkworth. He's part one. Part two is Edmund Mortimer who was a leading English noble. And the third part of this agreement was Prince Owen Glendower of Wales, who had been fighting for an independent state in Wales for some time. And so these three leading figures in the political landscape in in 1405 signed a contract together that were promised to support each other in deposing Henry IV of England and of making themselves masters of three new domains that had been effectively carved out of the Kingdom of England. And the Percys, who are not to be undone with ambition, had said that their own slice of the country would extend from Northumberland in the north all the way to Norfolk in the south. And this, they would have run this as their own fiefdom. Now, we know in hindsight that this plan never came to fruition. The Percy Rebellion was unsuccessful, but for a short time, it was feasible. And, and I see this as an amazing what-if of medieval history. It's absolutely fascinating. It's a springboard for a 
film or a TV series uh, a la Game of Thrones, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. And, and, and the, the, the details of this document are, to our eyes, almost incredible. There is reference made to the prophet who would foresee that this division would take place. And the prophet that they're talking about, historians, experts in, in this part of history and in this kind of document, say that that prophet is Merlin. So wow. the, the, the atmosphere in which this document was created wasn't, these people weren't delusional, but rather when the document was created in Wales, there was an atmosphere of things finally going the way of Prince Oenglendower and of Wales manifesting an independent state having been dominated by Norman kings and then later kings of England for so long. And so it felt for a short time that there was a new world opening. And so the people who wrote this document, who took part in these negotiations, were inspired by these mythical figures from the past. And so they made their way into documents like this. You know, it's a it's an incredible piece of evidence. Astonishing. Um, yeah. Well, there's a piece of homework for any aspiring writer who wants to perhaps do a short story about Walkworth Castle and this document. That would be a fascinating little short story, wouldn't it? You it know? would be brilliant, yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it, it kind of illustrates the, the kinds of things that we try to do at Walkworth is is not to tell the final word. You know, you asked earlier about some creative additions to historical fact. As a historian, as an archaeologist, I see, you know, my job is to, is to mediate those pieces of evidence, to work with things like the tripartite indenture, but then to translate it into what it might mean. And for most medieval material, whether it's written, whether it's archaeological, whether it's architectural, there is always an open question at the end. What does it mean? What can it lead to? And I think Walkworth is not supposed to be the last page or the final word, rather. It's just the end of our chapter. We want visitors to take these stories, these exciting things, and run with them, whether it means they just end up having a great time learning about an odd fact of the medieval past or whether, you know, some of the really touching human stories that Joe touched upon earlier kind of they take them into themselves and reflect upon them it's really it's a fantastic experience we really hope the visitors enjoy it too and i'm sure there's going to be a few teenagers who take that story forward of, <laughs> have you done your homework young man or young lady um i can't because i'm not wearing the right clothes <laughs> yeah I've, I've not got the right tie I'm, I'm i'm poorly dressed i can't do it athol has set the scene for that for future generations of teenagers to play that card i think yeah it's a great story and they're uh, really fascinating the fact that this this um tripartite um document was found as as well i think that's really really fascinating it's just a as you say a great what if it's um a springboard for a new story of english history if if things had gone off in a different direction so yeah exactly it's really exciting and it's a testament to to how complicated history full stop can be but also the work of generations of scholars who've poured over the documents who've tied two and two together to be able to tell this absolutely fantastic piece of history well i can tell just by listening to this and hope other people can as well that this is a, a really rich story and how do you think this whole project now will improve visitors experience of exploring the castle uh, let's start with, with with joe i think it will um improve not just a visitor's experience of exploring this castle but also exploring castles generally and will is a specialist in the way castles operated his research tends to show that these spaces were just so much more than the traditional idea of uh, strongholds and, and bases for fighting from. You know, these are places where real communities came together and also places that were about pageantry and about splendor. So any project that Will has done tends to be quite illuminating in that way. So and as well as being really fun and encouraging people to look around and get happily lost, this project intends to bring some of that spirit of community and theatre back to the site. And I think it does that really well. And it also, in terms of a, a very functional way, it improves the access accessibility of the castle. And that we've put in some new level pathways around the Bailey space, which is the level part of the castle. And as I mentioned earlier, a tactile model of the keep to help people who can't access the many, many stairs to understand the interior. So there's some very physical and concrete improvements we've made as well. That's really helpful, definitely. Will, you must be really satisfied that this project has finally come to its um, end. There's still more to sort of work on, I suppose, which will be one for a future enhancement, I suppose. But uh, it must be quite satisfying to sort of see it all be drawn together, to be able to present it to new generations of visitors. 
Yeah, it's it's extremely satisfying, and you know, it's it's an amazing castle. And credit is to everyone who's come before working on the castle and looking after it, and the site staff who you know are really passionate about making the castle as as fun and as engaging visit as possible. I find it very very rewarding. I've I found being able to talk about real people. You know, we we have a little bit of information about them, but because of the work of all sorts of researchers and and scholars, we can really fill the gaps in, in really interesting ways. There's one part I wanted to mention just because it was quite a late discovery for me, but I really think it captures what I hope visitors will take away from, from the castle. So there is a book of prayers, of, of religious prayers called the Percy Hours, which researchers at the British Library think was actually from Walkworth. And it dates to around the time that our stories are based, the early 15th century. And it contains prayers that the family would have said regularly to saints like Hild of Whitby and Godric of Finkale, that's an, an NEH property, Finkale Priory. Uh, and it also contains kind of some quite quirky things. So there's, there's a prayer to St. Apollonia if you're suffering from toothache. So Apollonia would help you heal your the pain that you were suffering in your in your mouth and in your teeth. But there's also a recipe for babies suffering from colic that would use specific kinds of roots and, and so on. And so this is a book which contains prayers for salvation, but it also contains interesting kind of recipes. But far and away, the most striking thing, which which is um which is in the audio guide, so you can go and listen to this, is a prayer that's written for a woman who is in the midst of a difficult pregnancy. And you know, Joe talked about the Countess Eleanor Neville being given this branch of coral by William Stowe in a will, and it's entirely possible that this prayer was written for for Eleanor. And it's such a striking, such a such a human plea for, for, for help, for divine support when this person is struggling from a really dangerous period in their lives. And for, for me, it brings people to life. You know, it, it builds that connection between a past over 500 years ago and today. And it reminds us that, yes, the medieval world was different, but they were real people. They were like us. And I, th- I think the Walkworth Project has, has facilitated us to tell that story, to bring these people to us in the present, I think. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Join us next week when we'll be back to discuss the history of coronations in Britain, ahead of the crowning of His Royal Highness King Charles III. And actually to see this made real, that is immensely exciting. I've been reading and hearing about this my whole life and now we're actually going to experience it. Thanks for listening. See you next time.